Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. During our last episode, Alice and I explored the similarities and differences between the wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan. But history and facts don't reveal everything about a war. The stories we tell ourselves give our wars meaning and help us make sense of that history. Tim O'Brien, the author of the iconic novel about the Vietnam War, The Things They Carried, actually believes that sometimes our war stories can contain deeper truths than the facts alone can communicate. According to O'Brien, a lie, sometimes, can be truer than the truth, which is why fiction gets written. In the second episode of a two-part series, Alice and I are going to look at some of the fiction that has been written and some of the movies that have been made to look for those deeper truths about the wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan. Today on Thank You For Your Service, the stories of Afghanistan. The war stories we tell both reflect and shape the relationship between the military and American society. World War I became the Great War. World War II produced the greatest generation. The Korean War was largely forgotten, and for too long, so were its veterans. But after the Vietnam War, our nation struggled to understand its veterans, and those veterans often struggled to understand themselves. In 1985, a somewhat obscure gathering, the Asia Society Conference on the Literature of the Vietnam War, brought together a group of what would become some of the most prominent veteran authors of that war. Matt Gallagher is a post-9-11 veteran and the author of several books. He also works as a writing instructor at Words After War a literary nonprofit devoted to bringing veterans and civilians together to study conflict literature. Matt first heard about the Asia Society Conference from one of his students and decided to write a piece about it for the New Republic. At this conference, 10 years, you know, 10 years after their war had ended, it was so sharply politically divided. And Jim Webb gave this very kind of infamous cantankerous uh, speech aimed at the, uh, the lefty writers that he felt had betrayed the cause and were uh, reshaping the narrative for, for uh, the American public in, in ways he disagreed with. A number of the quote-unquote liberal writers, uh, among them Tim O'Brien, pushed back uh, rather heartily. And, uh, you know, it's just really kind of fascinating stuff by writers that, uh, if, you, if you care about this stuff, you, you consider legends. Uh, and the, but, you know, they're all kind of just right on the cusps of, of, of their literary careers. Uh, you know, this is, for example, a few years before uh, uh, Tim wrote The Things They Carried, I asked Matt what his experience writing that piece might tell us about who gets to tell the stories of a war. 
so who gets to tell who gets to tell these stories? Um, you know, at this conference, uh, it was it was a bit smaller than I think uh, uh, my generation of war writers uh, have have wrestled with. Uh, um, interestingly enough, Webb of all people said that uh, more Vietnamese uh, uh, needed to be represented in American literature uh, about the war, and up to that point, there had been almost nothing. Um, in, the, in the coming years, you would see the sorrow of war translated. You, you'd see uh, 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 Hayslip's memoir translated, but this this preceded all that. It was v- very hyper-focused on individual soldier experiences. There wasn't kind of a, a macro geopolitical novel yet, though, you know, to be fair, generally those books take some years. And more often than not, it's, it's not veterans themselves who write them, right? Dennis Johnson's Tree of Smoke probably is the novel that I think best fits what Webb was calling for there. And while Johnson was of that era, he, he himself did not serve. The Sympathizer, written by uh, uh, Viet Nguyen, right, is, is, is another, you know, kind of big geopolitical novel, you know, written from a Vietnamese perspective, written by a, a Vietnamese American who originally came over here as a child refugee. So some of this stuff is going to evolve naturally and it's going to take some time. But Webb, while he said some crazy wrong things at, at this conference, in my opinion, was, was totally right about kind of a myopia that had set in amongst uh, this generation of writers up, up until 1985. There wasn't a, enough civilian representation. There weren't many women writers that had been publishing Vietnam-related stories uh, and been kind of accepted into this cadre just yet. That experience has changed somewhat in our current war in Afghanistan. We've seen memoirs like Teresa Fazio's Fidelis, Honorata Bogwati's Unbecoming, or Amber Smith's Danger Close as well as journalists' accounts of women's experiences like Gail Zemeck-Lemon's Ashley's War and Eileen Rivers' Beyond the Call. But we've also begun to hear some of the stories civilians who have participated in the war in Afghanistan have told us about their experiences in books and on their blogs and social media. A friend of mine has a joke that every civilian in a war zone has a story, right? And often that story involves either like one too many motorcycles or a divorce or something. But there's some means by which they they ended up there. One of those civilians was Dr. Aaron Simpson, co-host of the Bombshell podcast and a counterinsurgency expert who shared her experiences as a civilian woman deployed to Afghanistan with the military on her blog, Charlie Simpson's War. One of the things Aaron pointed out to us was how much storytelling goes on during war, not just after it. In particular, and something that struck her as a parallel between Vietnam and Afghanistan, was Americans' tendency to want to believe in a story of success. I did a lot of work on campaign assessments and campaign metrics, none of which, all of which pointed to the fact that things weren't going well. I mean, the questions were well designed, right? The data was there. But people didn't want to hear it, um, or they wanted to believe that, quote, just around the corner. We've all heard that so many times. Um, but it was the, 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 it's the same challenge of, you know, smart, well-meaning people trying to do the right thing and just continuing down, um, at best, a deeply strategic conflict. And I think that that's where Vietnam and Afghanistan are most parallel in my mind. Rereading Aaron's blog, I was struck by her competing identities. As a civilian, the Marines didn't see her as one of them. But as someone working with the military, civilians at the embassy also sometimes viewed her with skepticism. I mean, there's a definite distinction 
um, you know, being able to, you know, I speak MAGTAF, I can tell you what a MEB is, right? Like, I remember the difference between, you know, a wing and a group and a squadron and like, whatever. Um, you know, these are, these are things that we, you know, if you're a, civil, a defense civilian that you, you learn over the course of your career, but if you're a woman, you make sure to never get wrong, right? Because you're kind of laughed out of the room if you are. Uh, so there was definitely kind of a distinction between being, you know, um, we did a lot of work at the PRTs and I would go over to the the provincial reconstruction teams, you know, as a civilian, but I would fly in with the Marines when I did that. Um, I did not enjoy working with the PRTs. I found them really frustrating. I definitely had like a very, you know, kind of DOD mindset about the objectives and what we should be doing. And, you know, I, for example, have no problem with conditioning aid. It turns out that's a hugely controversial topic in the humanitarian assistance community. Um, I'm like, I'm here to win wars. What are you people doing? Aaron also told us how gender dynamics operated in different ways in a combat zone. It's very different being deployed versus being here in Washington, which was that in some ways it was easier to be a civilian female than to be a civilian male when you're deployed. Because if you're a civilian dude overseas and you don't work for CIA, what, what is your deal? Like, why didn't you sign up? Like, why are you here? How many push-ups can you do, Right. And so there's always sort of this jockeying and kind of an assessment of, you know, strength and machismo and like who's like the bigger badass and like whatever. Whereas like, I'm, I'm just the girl, you know, like, you know, the master guns when I was in Hellman was like, we'll put you in the, in the distinguished visitor quarters if we can call you princess. And I'm like, I've been called worse. Give me the keys to the DVQ. Those dynamics are also on display in one of my favorite movies about the war in Afghanistan. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Alice, I just watched that movie for the first time a few weeks ago after you recommended it. And I was really pleasantly surprised. What was it exactly you thought the movie got right? Well, I mean, first of all, what drew me to it was that Tina Fey starred in it, um, along with Billy Bob Thornton. And Margot Robbie and Martin Freeman were in there as well. So the casting seemed really great. I, I did realize later that some of the casting was a little problematic in that it had non-South Asian people portray South Asians and, and Afghans. But overall, I thought that the performances in the movie were really subtle. The movie itself was, it was sold as a comedy, which I think a lot of reviewers took issue with because it's not terribly comedic. It tries in a few places to be funny, but it's kind of more like painful funny, like, <laughs> like you're, you're laughing through tears kind of experience. But most of it I thought was a really interesting and unique take on the war because it was from the perspective of a civilian and a woman civilian. You know, the, the basic plot of the story is that Tina Fey plays, um, she actually doesn't start as a, as a journalist. Um, I think she's on the production team at a, for a TV news organization. And they end up sending her to Afghanistan as a correspondent you get this picture of her life as kind of in a dead end. She's got this boyfriend, but it's not the world's best relationship. And she just kind of does the same thing day to day, working on really boring stories. And so she figures, yeah, sure, I'll go to Afghanistan. But she's not really excited about anything in her life. And then she shows up in Afghanistan. And the, the sort of humor of the first part of the movie is like, what an idiot she is. And you and I have talked about this separately about um, that feeling of being a war zone tourist and how profoundly useless and stupid you feel and really are. <laughs> um, I mean, some of the earliest scenes in the movie are just her trying to figure out, like, 
you know, she brings a bright orange, I think, backpack with her. And um, Billy Bob Thornton, who plays a Marine colonel, who later becomes a general, inexplicably, which we'll get to, says to her, no way, or, you, you know, like, get, get some tape, cover that up, change the color of that, like, you're, you're going to call attention to yourself, and that's a safety issue for my men, and I won't have you be a safety issue for my men, you know, like, so she's just, like, doing basic stupid stuff at the beginning, and you're just supposed to be laughing at her being, you know, a clown, but a clown in a, in a context where it's really dangerous to be a clown, you know? Yeah, I think, um, I think I've told you before, just in a private conversation, that I'm not sure I would have connected with the movie as much if I'd watched this in 2009 or 2010, because I hadn't had the experience of going to Afghanistan sort of as a, a staff officer or an outsider and lugging the bags around and jumping on and off of helicopters and sort of always feeling a little bit out of place. Because I think there is a really different experience of what it's like to go to Afghanistan if you're going as part of a unit and you have this sort of network and team versus if you're going as an individual who is just sort of dropping in into the midst of this culture and all these other relationships and all these dynamics. And I really thought that there was something um, that the movie really captured about what it felt like for me when I went on these, you know, several week long um, or sometimes a couple days long uh, trips to, to Kabul and the way that it sort of got you to understand how you could go from being an outsider to totally being wrapped up in that reality or, you know, as they call it, to being ra- wrapped up in the kabubble where you go from a totally different, different experience and then very quickly uh, become so immersed in the culture and the relationships and the intensity of the things that are going on. Yeah, I also really liked, again, from that civilian perspective, the journey she went on from being a total outsider to being a more expert witness you know, she gets to be a pretty good journalist. And then over time, she actually becomes a participant. You know, she starts to, to really need the war personally. And she gets to a point where she's not participating the way you might as an armed combatant, but she's still part of the war's ecosystem in a way that she really isn't at the beginning and the way that you aren't as a war tourist. You know, she's not a tourist anymore. She, that's her life now. And Again, the, the movie becomes less and less funny as she gets deeper and deeper into what is depicted as an addiction. And in fact, the character named Fahim, who uh, is her fixer, is also a, a trained medical doctor. And there's this amazing scene between the two of them. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, there's this amazing scene between the two of them where he tries to help her understand that her relationship with the war now is like a person who is dependent on chemical substances, who's dependent on drugs. It's like their relationship with their drugs. Because just prior to that scene, she has put him and some others at risk in order to get a thrilling war story, you know, hopefully on the TV back home, because that's what she lives for now. And he says, you know, an addict will go further and further and further to get the high. And that is what is happening to you. And she doesn't want to see it, you know, and, and the, the, but the scene is really, you know, and, and the sort of culmination of the scene is she loses a relationship, right? She loses somebody. And I just love that, that perspective on as a civilian, you know, kind of what does it mean to participate in a war as a civilian? And in this case, it's quite literally participating in it. But that sort of transition from just dumb and ignorant 
to, okay, now I'm a witness and I kind of know what I'm watching to really being a participant. I just found that, especially as someone who's worked in OSD policy on the Pakistan account, I just really connected with that angle on the war and that part of the story. Yeah. And I, I do think there was something that, again, her being sort of consumed with the war in her life and then coming back, I think there are a few scenes where she comes back and either interact, interacts with other civilians in New York or with her boss. And for her, it's really jarring to see just how differently her world has become and how focused she is on the war in Afghanistan and how for her, you know, that's the only thing that she is thinking about and it's life and death. And then to be faced with the reality that just there aren't a lot of people in America who care as much anymore and that um, whether it's uh, the war in Iraq or other sort of domestic news stories, the war in Afghanistan was just getting crowded out. Um, and I, I really thought there was a degree to which um, it really captured that. But, you know, I, I don't think this, this certainly isn't the outpost, uh, which we uh, talked about last week. No, um, there's, there's none of the realism. Um, it doesn't give you the sort of small unit culture or it, it doesn't capture any of those aspects of the war. Um, and it's it's not a, you know, a dark comedy like War Machine that offers this critique of the bureaucracy and our policies. But I do think that it was a worthwhile movie to watch to look at all the different ways that different Americans, whether they're soldiers or civilians or women reporters or contractors, it gives us another glimpse into what the war was like for some of those who lived it and experienced it. On September 11, 2001, I was recovering from a surgery I'd had just after I graduated from West Point. I was just a dumb lieutenant in the Army, but when the war in Afghanistan kicked off in October, I was convinced it was all going to be over by the time I got to unit, and that I wouldn't get to deploy. That's something Matt Gallagher told us, too. When the war in Iraq kicked off in 2003, Matt actually wrote that he believed the war was only supposed to last a few months. Quote, the United States didn't do protracted conflict anymore not after Vietnam. You know, what's interesting to me, Jim, is that you and Matt aren't at all the first people who served in the military that I've heard express that anxiety that you miss the war. But I was in my last year of college in 2001, and I don't remember at all feeling like the war in Afghanistan would be fleeting. Maybe it was just because I wasn't pursuing a military career that I didn't think about the duration of the combat portion of the war. But I do remember feeling like everything from now on was going to be different. Matt's most recent novel, Empire City, imagines a very different America, one in which the United States won the war, or at least didn't lose the war in Vietnam, precisely because it abandoned the draft and adopted an all-volunteer force before the war ended. And not losing in Vietnam changed everything. Or maybe it just accelerated it. Matt told us he did that to draw an even clearer picture of what he thinks are the consequences of a disengaged public on the way we fight our wars and on American society's relationship with its military. Empire City, I wanted to kind of create a world, a very openly imperial America in the you know, Roman tradition, in the, in the high British tradition. You know, 2020 America, we're, we're, we're kind of bashful uh, about those things. And, and like, you know, like any analogy, it's going to be imperfect. Uh, but you know, there, there, I think there are some parallels uh, there, and 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 some big differences too. And I, I thought uh, I wanted to create an alternate America where we were kind of out and open and proud in a way that that ours is not. 
uh, and, uh, you know, going back to Vietnam seems the, the evident place to do that, right? Where, you know, in, in our reality, uh, Vietnam is uh, really kind of where the, the myth of an invincible America got punctured. Uh, and, you know, for, for a few decades, we heeded or at least pretended to heed uh, some lessons learned from that. Right. So this kind of the shadow uh, uh, has loomed large throughout American foreign policy ever since. And I thought it would just kind of be a, a really interesting counterfactual to explore questions of, uh, of victory and and war making. And, and, and more than anything, you know, uh, the, the theme of what what price victory, you know, uh, uh, of course, we want to we want to win our wars. Right. That's that's what the military is in business for. But as a society, as a republic, are we asking ourselves the hard, complicated questions that I think should transcend that, right? Uh, uh, that should transcend, uh, well, just because we can win this battle or win this war, should we? Is it worth it? You know, what, what, are, what are the long-term consequences of this uh, on us all? And, uh, you know, I, I think it's probably not too hard to understand that as an Iraq veteran, that, that question comes from my own experience and, and my own realizing after, after I served and got out that not enough people in positions of power ask themselves that when they, when they could have and should have. So I, you know, in this, in this novel, uh, I, uh, I did it in an in a alternate sort of way. One reason I found Empire City fascinating was that it really pinned down this critique we sometimes hear now about how some veterans feel a certain exceptionalism or superiority to American society but it also explored the consequences of the kind of hero worship of military veterans that can develop when so few Americans serve or have family members who serve. And that's a stark contrast to Vietnam. So, you know, in this world for listeners uh, who haven't picked up the book, uh, it's, it's about 25, 30 years deeper into their forever war than we are. Uh, and as a result, that kind of exceptionalism that you mentioned is, is hyper evolved com- compared to ours. The awkwardness that, that we, we see in our world of the, the thank you for your service has entirely dissipated. It, it is now a warrior caste, and it's been embraced that way on both sides. And the separation from regular citizen uh, amongst even regular everyday veterans is just, that's their normal. That's what they see and breathe and, and understand. For some, it's part of the reason why they served, you know, uh, something that Heinlein explored decades back with Starship Troopers. But as a result, in this world, America starts running out of Americans to fight these wars because, you know, there's, a, there's only so many that are going to volunteer in this forever war. So uh, the solution here, again, borrowed, borrowing from history, is legionnaires, foreign legionnaires who will uh, go fight America's wars for her. Uh, and uh, if, if they serve honorably uh, and if they uh, pass the requisite tests at the end of their service, uh, they will attain uh, American citizenship. So, you know, one of the main characters in the book is a, is a young uh, Haitian immigrant who's really found himself empowered um, and shaped by the military. He's, he's uh, I, I think, of, of the main characters, probably the most proud of his service and good at it, right? Like, he's a, he's a good soldier. Uh, but, you know, his, his initial impulse for that um, was, uh, was to, to earn his citizenship. It was, it was, it was a ticket, uh, ticket from, to a different life. Uh, uh, from uh, from a war torn Haiti, some of this was me me playing around and wanting to create an interesting dynamic world that's different than ours. Matt's comments and his critique in Empire City of this disconnect between the society and the military 
reminded me of a conversation we had earlier this year with Paul Zoldra, the founder of the Duffel blog. Paul told us he thinks this disconnect makes a lot of civilians hesitant to even engage the military. It comes down to the, again, the deferential treatment of the military and the fear uh, on the civilian side of being seen as unpatriotic. So, you know, we had the, the Vietnam experience and there was, you know, many anti-war films. There was also really incredible television series that came out of it called MASH, uh, which was set in Korea. Um, but they were discussing many of the concepts of, of war and peace and, um, you know, all these things uh, in, a, in a medical field hospital. And, you know, over time, we had, we had stories, uh, we had movies in the 80s like Stripes and there was, there was Sergeant Bilko. In the past, we had a television show about Private Pyle and that was like a funny take on, on Marine Corps life. Like in the past, they, you know, television producers were not super worried about upsetting the military. They were just making, making good, funny stuff. And it seemed to be like the military was just, just a part of that. You know, the, the, the goal was to uh, bring you some comedy or some levity to a serious thing. Um, you brought up enlisted and, and that was, that was, I, I had some high hopes for that, but they, they also played it really, really safe and the audience didn't like it. You know, the, the core audience of the military doesn't want you to play safe. You know, they want you to make fun of them. They love it. Paul also told us that is one reason he thinks the stories in the duffel blog, usually written by service members or veterans themselves are so important. They can help us break through some of that automatic deference to military service. And he thinks at least some of that deference may be an overcorrection from the post-Vietnam era. I mean, I've seen that at Duffel Blog, and you need to establish the credibility right away with not being so worried about whether I'm going to upset them or not. The, that's, that's partly a, a, a sort of reason as 9-11. You know, there's, again, we're, we have to be uber patriotic. Thank you for your service. And, you know, we can't make fun of the military. They're protecting our homes. They're protecting our livelihood. You know, how could you make fun of the military? I will tell you this. At Duffel Blog, we get the occasional hate mail, and um, which are always fun. <laughs> They're always fun to read. I'd say the vast majority of the angry emails uh, saying, you know, you can't do this, you shouldn't do that, they come from civilians. The, the military members usually are not getting mad at us for skewering the military. It's the people who don't have any clue about the military, but they have been you know, conditioned to just be super patriotic and they have to protect the military at all costs. We can't let it go back to Vietnam and you know, protests on, against the, the troops and that kind of thing, which I, I completely agree with. We were really far over on the protest and you know, troops coming home and, and saying you know, they were spit on or you know, they were not taken care of. And then we went completely the other way to deference and patriotism equals military is always right. And I think there's a big portion right in the middle where it, the pendulum kind of needs to swing back a little bit. We do need to question the military uh, pretty regularly. There's nothing wrong with that. I think one of the big takeaways for me, Alice, is that the stories America will tell itself about Afghanistan haven't all been written yet. And just like after Vietnam, the stories and narratives we do end up telling ourselves are likely to shape our military, our society, and the relationship between them for decades. That's our show for today. If you read more of Matt Gallagher's books, he's written an excellent memoir and several wonderful novels. His most recent book, Empire City, was released earlier this summer and is available now. And you can find him on Twitter at Matt Gallagher Zero. 
You should also be downloading the amazing Bombshell podcast immediately after finishing up with us so you can hear more of the brilliant things Aaron Simpson has to say. Or just follow her on Twitter at Charlie underscore Simpson. And if you're looking for a laugh, ignore Jim's dad jokes and check out the Duffel blog instead. Or follow Paul Zoldra on Twitter at Paul Zoldra, P-A-U-L-S-Z-O-L-D-R-A. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving us a five-star rating really does help other people find us. And we'd love to hear from our listeners. Follow us on Twitter. We're at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast. And send us an email telling us what you think of the show and what else you'd like us to cover. Our address is T-Y-F-Y-S podcast at gmail.com. Polite notes and dad jokes only, please. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. See you next time.